All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast. That's right, it's that podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is going to be a Mother's Day episode uh, to follow up our uh, Napoleon Dynamite, one of our favorite movies of all time, or at least mine. We're going to be doing Instant Family tonight on episode 180 of the show. We're going to do a 180 departure from our normal uh, content and guest selection. We're actually going to do a good show tonight with a good guest. It's going to be Rachel Kennerly of cannabis heals me so we're, we're doing the, the whole 180 but i don't want to change too many things here so i'm going to start off the show like i normally do and ask robert how's business sir how are you my co-host and friend we go way back by the way oh you're muted i gotta unmute you hold on there you go is this is this your first time thank you everybody uh thank you for having me back on the show it's good to be here i had an amazing business meeting today i don't know if it's going to work out but things are looking very very positive and uh, we may finally be into some serious, serious business here in uh, the Okanagan County of the great People's Republic of Washington. So long as, um, you know, the benevolent hand of government doesn't keep helping forever. Well, that's encouraging news. I'm, I'm very surprised because, you know, over the course of the past few weeks during the quarantine lockdown in FEMA Region 6 or whichever one we're in, uh, it's it hasn't always been rosy, right? The outlook has been somewhat grim and dim. Uh, with some recent upticks in uh, foot traffic and all that. So at least things are turning around. You were m- mentioning in the pre-show bonus content available for Patreon supporters, actuallyanagate.com slash Patreon, that you've been seeing more and more people kind of defying the orders to stay home and actually getting out and living life because what's life if not living, right? If you're not living, if you're just sitting at home in fear, are you really living? Well, and it's counterproductive too. I mean, you're just sitting at home, you're not exposing yourself to the world and not getting your exercise and your fresh air and your sunshine, you're, you're not developing your immune system. So especially if you're also really depressed and you're worried all the time about the COVID, that's not good for your immune system either. So it's not a question of if you're going to get this thing, it's just when you're going to get this thing. So sack up. We've already flattened the curve. The hospitals are essentially empty waiting for patients. So just get, Go back and live your life like you're saying. Well, at least I said something of substance and, and uh, you know, to help combat the uh, depression and loneliness and everything. Um, I've been handing out uh, care reacts on Facebook liberally um, because uh, as, as one of our guests, John Reed, has told me that every time a care act gets a care react gets used, a pantry gets filled just like an angel gets its wings and it's a wonderful life. So with that, I will send everyone listening a care react and get us into the last nighters portion of the show. Episode one, two, three, easy as ABC. We'll have some good vibrations and some sweet sensations as we tackle the question of raising a child and if it takes a village. Our guest 
for The Village is back at it again to discuss Marky Mark and the Brady Bunch film, Instant Family, for our Mother's Day lockdown episode on episode one, two, three of The Last Nighters. You can check it out at lastnighters.com slash one, two, three, and also on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is uh, Daniel Elwood. My co-host and hetero life mate is Robert Paul Johnson. And uh, we are going to be interviewing, or is it really even an interview show here? I mean, we just have guests on and we talk nonchalantly about movies and kind of shoehorn in some philosophy and some Austrian economics occasionally here and there. But it is, of course, the lovely Rachel Kennerly of Cannabis Heals Me. And uh, you were on most recently for The Village. You were on, um, I think, one time before that. I don't I got a bad memory. I'm getting old. Maybe I've been uh, hitting the cannaboids a little too much. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm as straight laced as you, Rachel. But uh, welcome back to the show. Why don't you remind everyone where they can find your work and what you do? Just a brief description. And we'll get into the uh, well, the Google description where we start talking about this movie. Hey, guys. Um, you can find me over at Cannabis Hillsby, the podcast, CannabisHillsby.com. Podcast, mom, wife, gardener, chicken farmer. That's pretty much it. That's my spiel. Oh, and if you need accounting work, I'm a CPA. <laughs> In the great state of Texas, or the formerly great state of Texas. Exactly, exactly. About some of that in the uh, pre-show bonus content available for Patreon supporters, lastnighters.com slash Patreon. We had a good, what, 45-minute discussion of me having bad internet and dropping in and out, but um, also talking about the uh, COVID and related uh, shutdowns and the defiant uh, salon owner in Texas who was uh, unjustly uh, imprisoned for um, you know trying to feed her kids. But that's neither uh, here nor there. Well, it is there. It's in the pre-show bonus content. But here we're talking about instant family tonight. And uh, one of the reasons, well, I'll, I'll ask this as my first point of question at you, is what made you suggest this movie? Or did you suggest this movie? That's another question. I don't remember. Uh, because I think you have some um, personal experience or some related experience that might be relevant and, and give some spe- specific and special insight into this one. Yeah, I don't remember how the topic of this came up. I probably just one of our other BS sessions where it just kind of brought up movies that we like and uh, instant families. I wouldn't say my favorite, but it's, a, I enjoy the movie. And the reason I guess I enjoyed it is because I, my husband and I have adopted from foster care in the past. And in most adoption movies, it's like the kids are buttholes and then the people adopt them and then they're wonderful children. And that's not really the way parenthood is period, let alone when you're parenting a child who has been, in foster care. And so this, this, and this instant family, it gives you kind of a, a real look into what life is like as a foster and adoptive parent and, and what it's like having these strangers put in your home by other strangers and gives you a really good, uh, realistic perspective on what the, what it's really like to adopt from foster care. And so that's one of the things that I like about it. It's, it's funny. And, and some of the things that, that the characters in this movie experienced and some of the things that they thought and said were things that I have thought and said as a foster and adoptive parent. So it was, it was nice to be able to think it was nice to be able to see, okay, I'm not a terrible person for thinking that and other people have thought it. So, you know, it's, it's kind of comforting to know that, that you're not alone. All right. Very good. And thank you for giving us that nice preface and the reason why we're doing this one. So I'm going to get into the Google description and then I'll go to Robert for his reaction. So first, Instant Family came out in uh, 2018. It's a comedy slash drama film, two hours long, PG-13, 7.3 IMDb, 81% Rotten Tomatoes, 57% Metacritic, and 95% of Google users like it. When Pete and Ellie decide to start a family, they stumble into the world of foster care adoption. They hope to take in one small child, but when they meet three siblings, including a rebellious 15-year-old girl, they find themselves speeding from zero to three kids overnight. Now Pete and Ellie must try to learn the ropes of instant parenthood in the hopes of becoming a family 
came out November 16th of 2018. Director Sean Anders, budget $48 million, box office of nearly $121 million, starring Mark Wahlberg and uh, Rose Byrne and Robert. Your response to the Google description and my singing that opened this episode, sir. Well, your singing was awful. It was atrocious. Please never do it again. And it seemed like you wrote something for the intro, which I appreciated the effort. But as long as you don't sing it again, I, I, I can appreciate that. I am guilty of singing on this podcast. And the fact that I do it is bad enough. I don't think we should get into the habit. Um, I, I I know some people find it endearing. I don't know how. It's more like fingernails on a chalkboard. But um, I don't know. Maybe you've got some fans that really like it when you do horrible things like that. But anyway, this movie... I, I, I watched it on Amazon Prime and that first page of reviews just reminded me that all you can do as an artist when you're making something is make something you're proud of. You can't make it to please anybody else because you never know what other people will like or not like or what they are leaving looking for or whatever because the reviews are either five star, great movie, loved it, all this stuff, or one star. And the reason they gave it one star is because man, they took the Lord's name in vain in this movie. And so one star. And that's got to be like a, a failure of marketing because I don't know if it was marketed as like a main Christian movie. It, de- it definitely didn't feel like a Christian movie. I don't even remember them going to church. I mean, at one point they pray over dinner. That's it. At no point other than that, are they, I mean, maybe there's a few people talking about when they when they go to that first meeting, they're talking about whether God wants them to have children or not or something like that. But they it's really, it's really just couple. That was like, right. There's the one religious couple, but it's really kind of understated. It's not like, I mean, it's just like a normal American town city. I mean, there's going to be a religious family and there's going to be whatever it's, it's a mix and match. It's not like a hardcore Christian message. So I don't know how the marketing convinced these people that this was going to be like the most straight laced PG or G rated movie of all time. And for them to be like, say God or something. And, you know, one star, no good. This thing is a piece of crap. It's just kind of funny because this movie's way better than one star. There's no way. I don't think it's a perfect five star movie, but it's definitely not a one star movie. This was this was a fun movie that had some serious drama. I don't know about you, but I got choked up at the end um, because there's, there's some really good human moments, and it also shows the the main two characters, the Mark Wahlberg character and the the girl character that you just said the name. I can't remember it. Rose. Rose. Burn. Who they really don't shy away from showing them as bad people or just just flawed characters, which I really appreciated. Um, they're not showing them as like these perfect ideal parents that are just gonna come in and save these kids and you know make us wonderful family. I mean, they're very human and the kids are human. And it's it's just a it's a it's a good human story. I I, I did appreciate that and it's you know it's got some funny moments and um yeah i mean there's all kinds of issues i took i took a few notes but um i i I liked it all right well that's that's a pretty good uh solid open and and yeah i I agree it was pretty good the um the one thing that struck me was it was trying to strike this balance between being funny but also having some drama or some heaviness to it and i don't know it just seemed like uh the contrast was a little bit i don't know like uh what's the right word it didn't really work quite right like the balance wasn't quite right for me but it still wasn't like a terrible movie by any stretch so uh rachel let's go to you for your take on uh google description my singing and anything that robert has said um i guess i have to be honest the singing wasn't the best 
But I did like the intro. I thought I thought the intro was nice. And then the singing, once you started doing the intro, then the singing made sense. So yeah, it wasn't terrible. I've I've heard worse. I used to do singing competitions when I was in high school, and I've certainly heard worse. So So not not the worst. Just like this show, she's not only the best (laughs) anarcho-capitalist film movie review show, it is also the worst anarcho-capitalist movie review show because it's the yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, my issues with this film. You want to get into it? What do you want to do? What do you want to what do you want to talk about? Man, we could get into issues, but there are a few things that I thought were like funny and Ooh, a few things that were funny, funny. racy. Ooh. And by racy, I mean race e. Uh and um yeah. Well, so- first of all, do you guys think that this was a like a progressive movie? Because it, they kind of take the piss a little bit out of Mark Wahlberg when he starts talking about how he feels bad like being the avatar, right? Yeah, the white savior. Yeah. And so then they're like, okay, well then let's just, I'll just write down not white or right only or non-whites only or whites only, whites only. They're like, no, 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 don't do that. <sighs> that would be, you know, seen of course is, is terrible. Uh, I thought that was actually like probably the funniest part of the movie. Uh, and not only because they are taking the piss out of that uh, because it, it is kind of ridiculous, you know, but also because, well, Mr. Wahlberg has a bit of a history and um, it's uh, apparently kind of forgiven sort of like joe biden's uh, history is kind of forgiven I'm not sure exactly why but uh you know just check out his wikipedia um apparently when he was a younger guy he was involved in some criminal activity that was related to uh, uh quote-unquote hate um and somehow he gets passed i think um you know he was a young guy probably made some mistakes uh and now he's a bankable star and uh, it seems like he's you know doing doing good stuff these days so just put that out there i i don't really know i i didn't know Marky Mark sorted past. I just knew he was an underwear model and a singer. Yeah, and that's bad enough. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's really unforgivable. <laughs> but uh, so, Rachel, you, you've adopted from Foster, and in the movie, mm-hmm. they talk about how there's uh, half a million kids in the system at any given mm-hmm. time. Uh, it, does that sound accurate to you? And what are some of the um, kind of the general ideas at play here? Like, I understand that you know, not every kid's in a good home, but aren't there some perverse incentives that basically inflate that number uh, or or make them get kids that um, maybe aren't actually in danger? I've, I've heard similar to the, you know, COVID stuff where they'll uh, be reimbursed medically if it's a COVID diagnosis, way more than if it's like any other diagnosis. And so it, it sort of has this financial incentive. I've heard similar things for foster and CPS and things like that, that while well-intentioned, you know, you want something to be there as a safety net and you want to be able to fund these things. Right. It sounds good. Right. But, uh, there's this, you know, like this uh, perverse incentive that happens that maybe people aren't even aware of that they're doing it because, oh, this means, you know, all, we get our budget increased by $8,000 or whatever. Um, so can you speak to, to any of that and how that relates to this movie? And, and I'm not trying to like crap on the system or people in general. I mean, I, because it's state run, I think it's inefficient and terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the service itself, the concept would be something in, you know, a free society that would still be a thing. And I, I'm sure it would run a lot differently. Yeah. I did a little research cause I wasn't sure what kind of how, what direction you guys wanted to go with the episode, but I did, a, did a little research and I think there's like 440 some odd thousand kids in foster care. Now I know that there's a lot of allegations out there that say, oh, there's incentives to remove kids, you know, financial incentives to remove kids. And maybe there are, I'm not able to, I mean, I I don't have that information at my fingertips and I I don't want to go that deep down the rabbit hole, 
I'm sure there are some perverse incentives, but you know, I watched a, a Ted talk by this lady named Molly McGrath. I think she's a, uh, she had CPS in Baltimore and they were able to, to do a lot of work in Baltimore to kind of reform their system. And one of the comments that she made about the system is that, you know, it, um, it's a, it's a system that it's, you know, people get this, these endorphins from saving a child. And so, then they want to go back and they want to save more kids. And then eventually, you know, they kind of get to a point where, you know, they're, it's more about saving kids or more about getting this rush of endorphins and being able to say that you've saved kids as opposed to actually doing what's best for the kids. And sometimes the best thing is for kids to be left in their biological homes. Um, I think 35% of the kids that are removed from homes are related. They, the parents have substance abuse issues with either, either illegal drugs or alcohol. And so you got a, a, a big swath of kids that are coming in and, and sometimes even something as benign as cannabis, they, the kids will be taken away from the parents based on that, especially in, if you're living in more conservative states like Texas, where it's still illegal, you'll still have kids removed from the home over you, cannabis. Do you have any um, episodes with guests that's uh, related to that, that we could put on our show notes page? Yeah, I had an episode with Krista McIntyre. She is with the family rights advocacy and she, what her organization does here in Texas is they actually work with parents who are under CPS investigation and let them know what CPS's rules are and remind CPS of what those rules are. And then they'll come alongside parents to work with them to help them prevent their kids from being removed from their home. Because that's a traumatic experience. If, if, if somebody comes in and rips your kids out of your home and it's not really necessary for them to do that, it's a horribly traumatic experience. I mean, even when it's necessary, it's traumatic, but to make it even worse when you, when it's something that's completely and totally unnecessary, whoops, my screen just went to sleep. Sorry. Um, so, you know, what they, what they try to do is remind CPS, okay, here's your rule. Your rules are, we want to keep the children safe. Uh, and just because their parents use drugs doesn't mean that that is an unsafe home. So if you check, check out episode 95 of the Cannabis Hills Me podcast, I've got that conversation with Krista McIntyre. And it's a really good conversation. We talk about what, what, what they do and then what CPS's role is supposed to be. And then also we discuss something that is a little more prevalent of late, which is like medical kidnapping. Uh, if the parents don't abide by what the doctor says that they should do, the doctors will basically sick CPS on them and CPS will go in and remove the kids. We had a, an issue with that in Texas this summer where a homeschool family had their son taken away from them because they wanted a second opinion from another doctor. And, and the doctor, I think at Texas Children's, but I'm not sure, he, he got upset with that. And so CPS showed up on their door and in violation of what their rules are supposed to be, removed that child from their home, but left the other children in their home. They just removed this one that they considered to be med medically fragile. Yeah, I mean, this it's a touchy subject, I think, because there are kids, many kids who are in danger, but mm -hmm. it also, you know, I, I don't want to like advocate for the state to be the arbiter of, of anything. Um, so again, I think it would be a service or, or some kind of like benevolent organization that would be you know, able to remedy or, or assist in these kinds of issues uh, in a free society. But man, it's got to be difficult, even even if um, these people are all trying to do the right thing and all have the best of intentions. I uh, just can't see that being a, a very clean or accurate system. Right. Well, and think of how many more, I mean, a lot of these problems that beset society are caused by government through so many unseen and seen factors through perverse incentives to making drugs illegal 
to all kinds of things that really destabilize homes. And then you got a bunch of kids growing up in homes that are destabilized. And then the government comes in and offers the solution. And then the solution's bad. It's just problem, reaction, solution, and constant cycle of more need for government. It's disgusting. So intervention leads to more intervention, which begets more intervention to try to correct for the past interventions and Mm -hmm. things of that nature. Now, I I actually do want to talk about the movie a little bit. And we don't get a whole lot of why kids are in the foster. Well, I'm not not saying that there wouldn't be situations that would need to be intervened in a free society. I'm just saying that any problems that are especially on the tipping point are exacerbated by government. And you think of how many jobs are lost due to, well, currently now, the government Mm -hmm. making jobs illegal. I mean, that's going to lead to destabilized homes and drug abuse and child abuse and all these other things that would cause reasons for children to be removed from home. So, well, they mentioned in the movie that the, the mother was, I guess she, her house was burned down because of a crack pipe or something like that. There was a reference made to that in the movie and that the older daughter had to kind of be the parent. And that, that happens a lot in, in foster care where the older child is stepping into the role of the parent because the, the, the actual parent is incapacitated by drugs or whatever. And so that's, I mean, that was real. The, what they, what they said as far as the parent and then, you know, the older kids do when they're in your home, that the older kids still try to, to keep that role as parent. They try to discipline the kids or, you know, say, don't do this or you do that. You know, they still want to be the boss. I mean, we had a, a sibling group of three placed in our home and the oldest child was five and she was used to being the mom. And so it was very difficult to, to, to try and help her see, Hey, look, you can be a kid. You don't have to be the adult anymore. And, and it was hard for her to relinquish that role. Sure. And it can also be difficult. I mean, I don't know how much these kids get kind of ferried around from home to home, mm-hmm. but I can imagine that there's a whole lot of defense mechanisms in terms of connecting with people Yeah, because you're going to push them away before you get close to them only to have them ripped away from you again. Right. Right. And I like so how- it leads to a lot of mentally and emotionally stunted people mm-hmm. that are constantly have separation issues and want to push people away. And I think that was illustrated in the movie. At least that's what I saw when they were doing that hairbrushing scene. I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. she doesn't want to get close to this lady because once you fall in love and love this mom, she's going to, you're going to get ripped away again. Uh, it turned out to be that her mother brushed her hair, but I could just imagine that that's a lot for uh, foster kids to have to deal with. Yeah. We saw that with the bears too, because they would get a bear every time they would go to court and he had this whole bag of them. So, I mean, he'd obviously yeah. been through this situation numerous times. And I don't know if that's because he's been in um, hearings related to his mother or for um, other people attempting to adopt them. I, I wasn't clear on like why he would have to go to court so often. Well, usually in the state of Texas, usually if kids are in foster care, you're in you're in court. The the and now in Texas, the kids don't actually go to court. Some courts want the kids there. Some kids some courts don't. But the courts in Angelina County, where I am. They don't have the kids come to court. Um, so like at least every six months, and I don't know if this is the law, but and probably is. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't happen that often. So every six months, they have a court hearing related to the case and kind of update the judge on where the case is. And so if he's got all these court bears, you know, and he's been in, I think it's just an indication that they've been in foster care for a long time. So if they're going to court every six months and getting a bear every time they go, then that's an indication of how long they've been in care. Right. And probably moving around, like like Robert was saying. Yeah, I mean, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a, a lot, of, especially when you get a sibling group of three, it's hard to find people that want to take that many kids. And then you've got an older one that's, you know, kind of a smart mouth know-it-all. They may bump around a lot. And then you've got, 
you've got people like the, the muskies in the movie that were fostering them. And it was pretty obvious that they were doing it for money. And, and that's actually absolutely true is that there are people that foster just for the money. I mean, there's, it's, it pays pretty well. It's uh, if that's what you're doing it for and it's tax free money uh, in the state of Texas for a, a, a basic level kid, which is just kind of a kid without, you know, that's not on psychotropic meds and doesn't have major um, emotional or uh, behavioral issues. The reimbursement rate for foster parents is like 27 bucks a day. So times 30 is, is a lot of money. Uh, I guess I should have run the numbers on that, but 27 times, I mean, that's basically, you know, Oh, 800, 700, 800 bucks a month. Yeah. And it, like I said, it's tax-free money because you don't have to claim it on your income tax return. Yeah. And, and the money end that I was talking about was that the CPS or whatever organizations would see money in their budget for every kid. Right. So that's the other yeah. side of it, right? Yeah. That was one of the, and then in Texas, there's a, you've got a child placing the agency. You can foster thre- straight through CPS in Texas, or you can foster through another organization, which is a child placing agency. And so for a, a, a basic level kid, the foster parent gets $27 um, a month uh, per day reimbursed to them by the child placing agency, and they get a total of 49 bucks a day. So they're making $22 a day for every kid in foster care. And the the people in this movie, the the ladies, um, was it Olivia Spencer? And um, I can't remember the other ladies. They were pretty honest and upfront with the people that came to this foster meeting. You saw the two people get up and leave. But a lot of these child placement agencies are not like that. You know, the the overriding goal of CPS when the kids come into care is reunification to put them back with their biological parents, trying, you know, make it safe and then put the kids back with their biological parents. But that's not is what is explained to a lot of foster parents. So you've got some agencies that will go into church and they see these hopeless, desperate people that don't have any children and they'll say, well, come adopt from foster care. You can be foster parents and you'll be able to adopt a child. And they don't explain to them that that CPS's goal is to put these kids back with their biological parents. So these kids come into care, go to these foster people who think they're going to be able to keep this kid forever. And then, you know, a few months down the road, the parents have worked their plan and the kids go back to their biological parents. And the foster family is devastated because they thought these kids would be there forever. Yeah, so you've like- got these you've got these agencies with with financial incentives to, you know, basically trick people into becoming foster parents. And it's not good for them or the kids, honestly. Yeah, we see that in the movie. It seemed like that they were at least told that that it's very unlikely that the mother would uh, even attempt to get reunification with the kids. And it seems like a recipe for disaster because you've got all these um, people devoting time and energy and trying to build these relationships and and do the best that they can and deal with all these issues that are related to the kids even being in the system for as long as they are, because like all the abandonment issues and the moving around, it's going to make them have all these defense mechanisms be difficult to, to manage and, and um, deal with and uh, have them trust you and even listen to you. I mean, I have enough hard time of a hard time having my kids <laughs> listen to me and they love me. I mean, you know, every day is dad day. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I try to tell them like, Hey, can today be mom day? Just, yeah. just please, you know, but you know, they mom still is probably you know. disagreeing with you right now. <laughs> oh no, no. She knows, she knows almost every day is dad day. And, uh, so I've been, I've been trying to, you know, slough off a little bit of, uh, to mom days, but you know, as, as, as great as they are, and they are really smart kids and, and really good kids. Uh, and we try to do the best that we can, but man, it's trying as it is with kids. You're, you think you're raising the right way. And I can only imagine what it's like with kids who have been traumatized and with you know, kids who have had these issues and then, and then having that specter of, you know, potentially the, 
parent, you know, maybe trying to get them back and then maybe failing like in this movie mm-hmm. because it's kind of hanging over their head. I mean, we see this in the movie where the mom starts to getting, gaining visits with the kids and yeah. then the kids behave differently for a period of time after that. And, and it's yeah. like causing this, uh, is the right word a schism or this uh, chasm between the relationship that's being built? Uh, right. Obviously the, the older daughter, she wants to re- reunify with the mom because I mean, it's because it's her mom, but not because it's like a better situation for her, you know, or at least, I mean, it's subjective. So it's really hard to say, but like, she probably is aware that the mom is not going to be able to provide like as nice of a home and, and as good of food and as, you know, a, as good of an environment, especially for the younger siblings. But she also subjectively wants to be with her biological mother because yeah, there's certainly a bond there. Right. Anyway. I think, the, I think the movie does a good job of showing that because that is, that is what it's like, you know, it's, um, there is, there's this, this pull with these kids. It's like, you know, we want to love you. And then we go and we see these people once or once a week or every other week. And while they're there with those people, they love them and they want to be with them. And then, you know, sometimes the the parents, the biological parents are doing everything they can to undermine the relationship that you've developed with the kids while they've been in your home. And, and it is, it's, it's, um, there's a little, there's jealousy between the biological parents and the, the, the foster family. Cause you know, you feel this possessiveness, like those are my kids. And the biological parent is like, those are my kids. And it's like, well, and so as, as a foster parent, you're like, well, you effed up their life and look at all these terrible things you did to this kid and what you didn't do for them. And we're trying to, to make that right. You know, the best thing for, for them is for them is for, for them to stay with us forever. So there's this jealousy and this kind of back and forth. When, when my husband and I first started fostering the first, um, the first few kids that were in our home were temporary placements. We knew when they came in that they would only be with us for a month. And so we were able to foster a relationship with their biological families that they were going back to, or, you know, other biological family members and able to, you know, we gave them pictures because we wanted them to know that we're not these terrible foster parents that you hear about all the time. And so we gave them pictures and, you know, tried to develop a relationship with them. But when you've got a, a child placed in your home where they say this is an adoptive placement and they're going to be yours, that totally changes the dynamic. You don't want to work with those people. You want those kids to forget they ever knew those people and only love you. So it's right. it especially, just changes it. Especially if you know, like, some of the story, right? And, and yes. how awful it is. Yes. Yeah, that, that other one where you know they're only with you for a month, that actually sounds like a pretty reasonable approach. Like, okay, you know this is temporary. They know it's temporary. You know, everyone knows, you know, everyone's on the same page so that we're going to make the best of the four weeks or, or whatever it is. And and even if it's, if it's only temporary, I mean, it was, it's still excruciating when they leave. Um, the first, first kids that we fostered were twins and they were, like I said, they were with us for a month and they were like five and six pounds when they were placed with us. So they were itty bitty. Wow. And, uh, you know, between the, the lack of sleep and, uh, because they didn't, they didn't all, they didn't sleep all night, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So, I mean, I, I've never cried so hard in my life when they left and they were only here for a month. And then the the next little girl, she was with us for about a month. And um, that was really hard too, but, but we were able to make those connections and, and we're able to actually like stay in touch with those kids now that they've made, gone back to their biological family. So, you know, we were fortunate in that, you know, the people in CPS were surprised that we were able to to form a relationship with the family and still keep in contact with them, even after the kids went back. But 
it's certainly not always that way. And it's, it's definitely not that way. And when you have kids placed in your home and people say these kids are going to be yours, that totally changes the, your willingness to work with their biological family. Yeah. All right, Robert, I want to loop you in a little bit. I'm sure you have some feedback for what we've been talking about. And then, I, then once you're ready, I have a question, a pointed question for you. Oh, okay. Cause all I got is, is questions, but I was wondering in the film, when the uh, main characters, they want to adopt these kids, they have to, they're like, okay, you can adopt, but you have to take this class and uh, like preparing them for the challenges that they face. I'm wondering, Rachel, did you have to do this also? And if you thought that it was a positive experience that accurately prepared you, I mean, it's not going to prepare you for everything, but did you think it was a necessary step? It is, you do have to take classes. Now, did we form a bond with the other people that we were in classes with? No, because, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm not trying to find a best friend when I'm there. Uh, you know, you do kind of develop some friendships, but they're just kind of superficial. Hey, how you doing? It's not like, and we didn't have like monthly meetings. That's not something that they offer here. Uh, but yeah, there are classes that you have to take. You have to take, um, you have to take classes on administering psychotropic medication. Even if you don't have a child in your home that takes psychotropic medication, you have to take CPR, first aid and CPR. And then, you know, learning about paperwork that you have to fill out. If you have a kid that breaks their arm, like the, the kid in the movie, he winds up with a, a staple putting in, uh, putting a nail in his foot. And I'm like, well, there's an incident report. But uh, CPS does not show up at the hospital with you. That's <laughs> that's complete fiction right there. Because I've I've we had a little girl that broke her arm, and I ended up having to take her to the ER. And no, nobody showed up at the hospital to sit with me for an hour while I waited. But yeah, it's it's I think it gives an accurate portrayal of what it's like to become a foster parent and then to adopt. So yeah, definitely the classes are are totally legit. Okay, and you think that that would be something that would be required in like a free society? I think so, because um, a lot of the the focus has shifted in the last couple of years to to be more like a, there's a lady named Karen Purvis. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she's um, she has this different approach to foster care called trust-based relational intervention. And it's basically a way of seeing past the behaviors and trying to figure out what's causing the behaviors and address the root cause of the behavior, as opposed to addressing your, your focusing your attention on the behavior, what's driving it. And so, and then you learned a lot about uh, trauma and how that affects the brain because trauma can can delay development of a child. Maybe you've got a, a 15 year old in your home, but emotionally they're 10 years old. You know, so you're looking at this teenager expecting them to act like a 15 year old, but the only they can only act like a 10 year old because that's all they're capable of doing. And so, you know, some of the some of the classes are better than others. It depends on how good the teacher is, just like anything else. You know, some of it is like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been in classes where I'm like, OK, I could teach this so much better than the person standing up there lecturing me because they they aren't even pronouncing the stuff correctly and they're not explaining it correctly. So is it is the state really good at explaining it? No. But we actually sat in classes with with Karen Purvis and went to, you know, voluntarily went to things to try to equip ourselves as foster and adoptive parents and learn from the very people who are who created this program. And they're so much better communicators than somebody making 30,000 a year trying to teach who've never had foster kids in their home, trying to teach foster parents how to treat kids in their home. Okay. Now I'm going to ask this question. Yeah. To Rachel, I'm going to borrow a bit from Stephen Colbert. Not, not a guy that I agree with politically, but he's still pretty funny. <laughs> um, as a reason to adopt being able to shove it in your smug relatives and friends faces. <laughs> is that the best reason to adopt? 
or just a really, really, really good reason to. Uh, I mean, if you want to achieve sainthood in other people's eyes, you know, adoption is a pretty good way to do that. So, um, just showing everybody else how virtuous you are. That's right. That was really that's, what that's they the, were doing. That's the ultimate virtue signal is to go out and adopt. I mean, that's totally the reason why you should, you should adopt from foster care. Well, that was what they initially started doing. And then they found it was going to be difficult. And then they got doubted. And they're like, well, now we're going to do it just to spite you and prove you wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, to, the funny thing reason. is, is that the the family reaction is, you know, their extended family's reaction is, is actually pretty accurate. You know, not everybody that, is in your extended family is going to agree with your decision to adopt. And, and a lot of them are thinking, well, you're adopting damaged goods. So we don't want them to be around our kids, our real kids, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's not an uncommon reaction for extended family to be like that. So, I mean, I, I really found a lot of the stuff that was in this movie to be realistic. We, we were very blessed. Our, our extended family has always been very opening, uh, very welcoming and, and warm to, to the kids that have been on our home, either as adoptive or foster placements. We've, We've never really experienced what what they experienced, but there are other people that have severed relationships with their biological family because their biological family was not able to accept their adoptive kids as their own and embrace them as truly, you know, their grandkids or whatever. Wow, that sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a podcast that I, I listened to and that it's, um, I think, I don't want to say, I can't remember her nationality, um, but her mother just was not able to accept her adoptive kids. And she basically just, you know, she already kind of had a strained relationship with her mom anyway. And she basically just said, look, you know, no, I'm not doing this. You know, these are my kids, regardless of what you say or what you think. And I'm not going to let you treat them like second class citizens. And she ended up ending, you know, just cutting off the relationship with her mother. Wow. Well, I wanted to to jump off this um, just a little bit and just say that that scene with the family was actually one of my, favorite scenes because they do another kind of jab at, um, I guess I'd say the normies or the SJW types when they say, Hey, we had to listen to you talk about the deep state for 30 minutes. You can listen to us talk about this. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So that was a nice little jab, um, in there. And then, uh, Robert, I wanted to, this was the question I had for you. Did you see and, and identify with the Wahlberg, Wahlberg character as being a fixer? Like he was treating these kids like they're a reno, my reno, you know, they're like a house to like refurbish and, and try to resell. Uh, and, and I know that we've had conversations about this probably going decades back now about how a lot of times the, the, the guy in the relationship will want to fix the problems that the girl brings up, but the girl doesn't want a solution. She just wants to talk about the problems. So she just wants her, her, her feelings validated. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I'm totally guilty of this. My, my wife will start piping up about something and I'll be like, all right, do this. She's like, no, I just, I don't want you to tell me what to do. Just yeah, shut up and a, listen. I need a vent. There's a scene when the uh, Mark Wahlberg and the the wife there go to the first seminar, right? And he starts Mark Wahlberg. He starts talking about rescue dogs, and he's like, "Maybe if you called them rescue children." Yeah, I loved it because he was like, "I'm gonna fix your problem. I'm gonna solve this whole thing, and I'm gonna make adopting kids like a new hip thing that everybody's gonna want to do, and all the kids are gonna get adopted." And I'm just going to, it's, it's a marketing thing. I'm just going to fix you. I thought that was a great little scene from what a guy would say. Cause that's something that I would say, you ever thought about doing it this way? Like this, this system that's been in, around for decades and centuries. And you're just like, I'm going to fix it. I, I thought that was a great real man line to make, but yeah. Um, yeah. Throughout the whole movie, he's, he is the fixer. They are fixers. They buy houses and they fix them up. And I think they see them, the kids as a project at first and that they're just really good at it at first. And then, 
you know, then the cracks show and then they, things get hard and they bail, they want to bail and then they hate the kids and they just want the virtue points. I love their their attempt to bail was going to get them even more virtue points. Well, let's just say that it fell through and then we'll get all the pity points. That that to me was probably the, I mean, the funniest part of the movie because I've I've been there when I'm like, golly, you know, and, and not with my son now, but more with other kids that we've had in our home. And it's like, we just get all the crap, you know, it's like, how can we get out of this? And, you know, and then you realize ultimately, you know, you're not, you're not going to do that because you love the kids and you don't, you don't really want them to go, you know, but they, they drive you crazy and, and really being hamstrung by CPS and how you can handle them is, is frustrating as well. But, you know, I, you know, I, I, I that's probably the, the funniest part of the movie to me. It's, it's like, because I've, I've, I've thought those exact same things. And, and I think my sister-in-law, they've adopted from foster care as well. And so we can kind of talk to each other. These are things that we would never say out loud to anyone because they would think we were terrible people if we said them out loud, but we're able to kind of vent to one another and, and say things. And it's like, you know, they were listening to a conversation that she and I had had in private. And, you know, that just, it really resonated with me because I've been there and, thought those same things. Well, from a screenwriter's perspective, it's a pretty brave scene to have your main characters talk openly about getting rid of these kids and that they just want the virtue points. It's a really unlikable thing to do. And it's only something you can put in after you've already established that they're pretty good people. You Mm -hmm. can't put that out at the beginning of the movie. And the the audience would not be on board with these douchebags. But you put it in the middle of the movie after they've had this hardship and you can kind of understand it. They double down on that with um, when the judge reads uh, the girl's complaint against them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the facts are you did this, 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 and this, and they're all terrible things. And they don't let them rebut any of it or explain any of it, uh, which I had a problem with that. Like, okay, how fair is it that you can't even explain the circumstances around something? You know, that's yeah, not- you take it out of context and it sounds pretty terrible. Like, did you assault this kid in this school? Yes, I did. Right. End of story. Facts. Yeah. I but I mean, really, that's a that's a pretty accurate portrayal because when you go to court as a foster parent, you have zero rights. You don't you don't get to be heard by the judge. Your opinion doesn't matter. The fact that these kids have been in your home for two years and you know them in the longest they've ever been in any home before, and you know them better than anyone else on earth, you have zero input whatsoever. Yeah, that's There's, another flaw. Then you know. Yeah, I mean, nobody asked for your opinion. I gave it, but you know, ultimately, my opinion didn't matter. So, but I still told him what I thought for all the good it did. Yeah. All right. So, so we talked, we just sort of, uh, got to this point where we can sort of bring this up. Uh, they assaulted this kid, um, who's a 22 year old kid or no, they actually first assaulted Charlie. Who's like a 15 or 16 year old, but then they went after the janitor. Robert, I want to direct this to you. Ooh, this was one of the things that I felt like was, um, had more weight to it. Like a more of a, this isn't a comedy exclusively now this is they're talking about a relationship between uh what is she 15 and a 22 year old now we've talked about age of consent and and things like that and it seems like kind of take the dave smith angle on this even though i sort of had it before i heard it from dave but it's like all right well we can all agree that somebody who's 50 years old can make this decision and we can all agree that someone who's eight can't so there's somewhere you know in that range and it's going to be different depending on the, on the situation, the person and the maturity and intellectual capacity, whatever, you know, whatever the criteria are, where it's going to be a bit subjective for each person. But in this movie, they certainly just take it at face value. 22, 15, bad, illegal. Um, 
So just, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to direct this question, but did you find that that was um, kind of like a, a legitimate response for Wahlberg to go after the guy and like punch him and, and to, to intervene in that situation? I mean, there was, you know, exchange of uh, dick pics and, and whatnot. And, you know, it's a, it's a yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question. I mean, I'm going to have to deal with this kind of shit in like 10 years, right? 15 yeah, well, this is this is definitely a response that is heavily dictated by culture. I mean, you, you go back a thousand years and nobody's even going to bat an eyelash. I mean, kids are getting married at 12 and 13. Right, and they're to, dying at like 26. Yeah, or they're getting married to adults. You know, they're getting married to 30, 35-year-olds. I mean, if you go into the Mormon church, this is commonplace and happens all the time. And nobody bats an eye today, let alone 100, 200 years ago. So... Uh, I, you know, obviously the movie sets it up that the janitor guy is this creeper dude who's kind of a kind of preying on this dumb kid. But I would say that the kid is pretty savvy. And I would say that the the main parent characters don't necessarily really know her that well. But I mean, at the same time, they are her guardian and she is not a fully featured adult person and they are responsible for her. So I don't necessarily condone them, you know, assaulting the guy and beating the crap out of him, which is why the cops get involved and actually arrest them too, because it's not necessarily, you know, self-defense in any way. But I, I, I also, you know, not totally against it either. I mean, if that's my daughter and that guy's doing that, I might very well act the same way and be like, well, I guess I acted immorally there, but that's just the way it's going to be. Um, it's a, it's, it's very culturally dependent i yeah you you go to any time you know thousand two thousand years ago and this is happening all over the place all the time and with the willing consent of the parents that are like yes please take my 12 year old daughter mr 40 year old man she's gonna have a better life with you and this is gonna move us up the political ladder or whatever the status symbol of the society and all kinds of reasons people do it but yeah it's this is not it's only it's almost like it's a very privileged argument to make you know it's like today and age when a kid has enough wealth to be a kid and they don't have to work when they're 12 or 10 to help put food on the table. They don't have to get married off when they're 13 because they're going to die when they're 23. It's like we have this wealth and this medical ability to keep people alive that has created a very privileged society. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's developed this culture where a kid is still a kid at 15. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that angle, actually, that inception argument where you go further left than the left. You like take their argument of privilege and you turn it in on itself and be like, well, actually, the privilege is that they can actually be a kid at 15 and, and that they're not going to die at 25 or whatever, because that's the average age in when the 1100s or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's actually a pretty good take. Um, you know, I was kind of torn on. I, mean, I was sort of rooting for, for Wahlberg to kick that guy's ass because well, they portrayed the janitor guy as a creep who's definitely taking advantage of a situation and, and a young girl. But she's also very mature in some ways. She's very capable of handling herself, but she's also traumatized or damaged in many ways as well, like emotionally yes. scarred, uh, you know, probably has some attachment issues and all of those things. So but I mean, who doesn't, honestly, you know. So, yeah, it's just a, it was interesting to see that. But but th- that was some of the gravity of the movie that didn't fit well for me with the comedy of it. So it kind of like made the movie juxtapose itself uh, when I was. Well, watching. what did you well, what did you think, Daniel? Since they were assaulting the guy, they were putting not only themselves, obviously, at risk, but the kids in the car. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. They, they totally had blinders. they were neglecting those kids in the car by going after the guy. So not, honestly, not, if they were good parents. They would have had just Mark Wahlberg. Okay, you go beat the shit out of that guy, and I'll be the mom, and I'll take care of the kids back in the car. Right? Yeah. So, so I think what's depicted there, though, is that they are not 
um, even aware at, any longer. They're so blinded by the anger that they're not like even considering that the kids are still in the car. They're just like so focused on what the fuck, you know, right. handle this. But and, it's clearly a parenting fail, right? Oh, I mean, how many how many times in the news media do you see kid gets left in car dead, you know, in the hot, yeah. hot sun, dad's devastated, but he's still going to jail, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen stories like that in Texas, Walmart's in Texas and things like mm -hmm. that. But I've also seen the other side where somebody actually literally ran inside somewhere for one minute and then the police were there. So it's like, mm -hmm. all right, well, again, there's there's some level where, uh, you know, it's okay. But uh, where that line is, I don't want the state making that decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, uh, before we run out of time here, I do have one last note. Um, I am such an anti-authoritarian and I assume that there would be, you know, private courts in the free society. But at the very end of the film, this, when the, when the judge, it's supposed to be this happy celebratory scene and I am kind of tearing up cause it is happy and I am glad that they're all together and whatever. But this judge starts talking and he's like, by the authority vested in me by the state of California, I now pronounce you a family or something like that. And I'm like, fuck you. You don't get to decide who's a family or not. You piece of shit. They decide who's a family or not. But in, that, in some sense, obviously the kids can't decide. They don't have the judgment to decide what's best for them necessarily. So somebody would come along and I guess, you know, voluntarily or whatever, you know, say that you, these people are the best people for you to be with as these children. But I, something about that authority vested in the state of California and me, I now declare you a family, really chap my hide. Did anybody else react to that? I don't know. Yeah, that got me too. And, and also that he had been such a dick to the, to the foster people um, earlier. And then all of a sudden now he's like super goofy, nice guy who's like, oh, I'm going to play some like peppy music and we're all going to stand up and get a picture together. I uh, just that that also rubbed me the wrong way because it's like, all right, this guy was an asshole, you know, in the previous scene where we saw him. And now you're going to make him out to be this like clown character where he's like this great guy. And yeah, just yeah, sorry. That's just the way judges are, though. I mean, they expect everybody to be very deferential to them. Yeah, they do. No, they all have a stick up their ass about how <laughs> you have to respect them and bullshit like that. Yeah, just so, like the judge in Dallas. Indeed, which we spoke about in our pre-show content available for people on Patreon. That's right. Yeah, way to sell it. Yeah, and it, it actually was a really good discussion, even though I dropped out a couple of times. But that actually probably improved it because I wasn't around to like, I don't know, speak some nonsense and derail things like I usually do on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, so Rachel, I, I know I also had experience with my kids getting gifts and liking the boxes more than the gifts. <laughs> Is that a thing that you've also experienced? Because that rang true to me uh, in this movie. Like they could care less about what was in the box. They want to build something, you know, some imagination with the box. And, and this goes back to something that Robert and I have talked about a lot, where in a movie, like even a horror film or especially a horror film, it's what you don't see that's scarier than what you do. Mm -hmm. And and so the toys, you know, the more realistic they are or like the computer video games, like the more realistic they are. It's cool, but the more you have to use your imagination and embellish a little bit, you're more involved and it's more like a subjective experience. And I, I feel like that was maybe what was happening with the kids was they were using their imaginations with these boxes and doing something creative, sparking different areas of the brain rather than just this pleasure center, but also a creativity center. And I am totally fucking this up, but um, do you kind of have the kind of, did you have the same reaction and, and uh, what's your take on it? And, and do you think it's um, kids in general or was there something about foster kids because I think it's meant to show us as an audience, like, hey, these kids are so disadvantaged that they're happy just having boxes. But I don't yeah. know, if, you know, really like what's going on. I think it's, you know, the creativity and all that. 
I think it's just kids in general. I mean, we've, we've never had an experience like that, but it's like you get a toy and you spend all this money on it and you think that's going to be his favorite. And then it ends up being some $5 dollar store toy that his aunt brought him, you know, that, that why it, that makes fart noises that he, and he loves more than anything else. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's just kids in general. We try to make things so complicated in this consumer driven world that we live in. We think we have to spend the most money on it and really they can find pleasure in very simple things. One, one year, my parents got us laundry baskets for Christmas. Now, we were poor, but we weren't so poor that my parents couldn't afford to get us, like, real Christmas presents. But we were always playing in my mom's laundry basket. And so they bought us laundry baskets for Christmas one year. And we had the best time with those, you know, making trains and boats and, you know, sliding them down the stairs of the house, you know. So it's – we just – try to make things so much more complicated for our kids and more expensive for our kids than, than we have to. We try to give them everything that, that we, we never had as kids, or we think that they've never had as kids and, and really they can find joy in the simplest of things. And, yeah. and it may have been a commentary on the fact that, you know, these kids haven't really had a lot. And so what they enjoy playing with is what they are used to playing with. Maybe they only got boxes in the past. I don't, yeah. I don't know, but I, I think we just try to make things more complicated than it has to be. Well, my kids love boxes and, and we're constantly like, okay, fine. You can play with this one. And then they'll do something where they'll wrestle with each other and, and like someone will get hurt and cry. And then we're like, all right, we're getting rid of the boxes. They're going to recycling. Um, yeah, I mean, my son has, has had tons of fun with boxes. I mean, not that he would give up all of his toys to play with the box, but you know, there have been times where, you know, if we got a new refrigerator or something, he was so excited. He and the other kids were at the time were so excited to play with the box because it was a big, huge box and they could color on it and cut holes in it and make it a house out of it. Yeah. So, Robert, this this ringing true for you at all? Do you remember growing up and, and like using your imagination for play was better than like the cool toy? I definitely remember using my imagination as a child for sure. I don't I think I think you made an excellent point as as, you know, video game graphics get more realistic and as CGI in movies gets more realistic. It does become less of a subjective experience and you do have to use your imagination less. And yeah, I, I think we maybe that part of our brains is kind of dying out and we're just kind of like seeing and reacting to what we actually see as opposed to using our imaginations. I don't know. But yeah, as a child, um, I don't remember a whole lot as I get older and older and those memories kind of fade. I, I remember having certain toys and really enjoying those. I don't necessarily remember all the cardboard boxes I played in, but I do know that um, my sister's kids, there was definitely a cardboard box for sure. Absolute. I, I don't think it's now. I think they've kind of grown out of that now. Can you believe it? My nephew is now, he's like six years old and he's programming video games already. I just, I played wow. one of his video games like a couple days ago. That is uh, pretty impressive. That's awesome. My kids love the Wildcrafts right now. So they know all of these facts and things about different animals. And uh, they're huge fans of it. So now they want to like entrepreneurially start a business where they're taking care of like wild animals and rehabbing them to release them back into the wild and all this stuff. And like, well, you know, if, if there's money in it, <laughs> go for it. There ain't no money in that. <laughs> yeah. Not to pop their bubble. Well, you know, the, the uh, what was it? The Black Rhino made a comeback uh, from private ownership and, and the actual private uh, replenishment effort. So maybe there is room for that in the future. Maybe so. so. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I'll try to find that story and put it on the show notes page at lastnerds.com slash one, two, three. Got my good vibrations, sweet sensations. Hey, was the girl Feel it. Feel was it. the girl in the movie? Was she the one in the song? That's that's the credit said. She was singing. Yeah, I think so. So, so she the voice. one from the Funky Bunch? What? Is she the you remember the Funky Bunch video, the good vibrations, Marky Mark, the Funky Bunch video? He's got the abs. 
Oh, I and, thought it was some fat lady. Yeah, they, they, got, the they had some skinny thing? girl do it in the video. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, Not the, the girl hell are we from the talking movie? about? You're right. Yeah, in the video. Yeah, there was like this. Um, they used some it's other like the whole Millie, Millie, Millie Vanilli. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, it was controversial. Yeah, yeah, because there was like this. Now, I heard about that. I didn't hear about anything else that Marky Mark did off the screen. Yeah, there's a whole section on the Wikipedia about hate crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to besmirch the guy. I think he's a good actor. I, I like him. Yeah, yeah, he had a he had a rough history. Um, anyway, yeah, that was that was my good vibrations. Um, the singing yet again. Thank you. Like, Thank you for sharing that. Start to close out the show. <laughs> All right. Um, any last notes? I, I have a note here. I missed the rut, and I do feel this. I do experience this with my own kids. My wife and I were married for a couple of years before we had kids, and we remember being bored and having time to just waste and not do anything, you know. And now I'm kicking myself, like, why didn't I read that book or that book or do this thing or that thing? Because now I don't have time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I miss the rut. I miss that that time. And, and I know a lot of people are, are kind of experiencing that now with the quarantines and the stay-at-home orders, where they have all this extra time and whatnot. I don't experience that because my work is actually busier than it's ever been, and the kids are home all the time. Versus usually they leave two three times a week and go do something you know, go swimming or go to the children's museum or the library, go visit friends, whatever. That's not happening anymore. So now uh, like I'm around and my office, uh, I'm in it now, but I haven't been working in it for the past month, month and a half because we had chicks out here and it's like covered in chicken shit and dust and everything. <laughs> so I've been in the house. So it's been like, you know, I've been busier than, than I've ever been, but I do miss the rut. I do miss the before kids. I do miss the being bored. I do miss the being able to sleep in. I haven't slept in past, I don't know, 7 a.m. in years at this point. Uh, sleeping in until seven is like considered sleeping in. Um, so I just wanted to get your reaction, Rachel, because I know Robert is still feeling that uh, bachelor lifestyle that I, at the time I was like, wow, this sucks. But now I'm looking back on it fondly. Well, my son is, is actually gone. We, sh we shipped him off to Nana and Papa's on Sunday. So he's in Missouri right now. And so it's, it's kind of like it was before, because my husband and I were married for 18 years before Skylar came into our lives. And, uh, so it was a lot of quiet, do what we want to do type evenings. And it was a it was a difficult transition because you go from doing what you want to do. Not that we really did a whole lot, but we could watch what we wanted to watch and whatever else. And now you can't really do that because you've got a very active three-year-old in your home that likes to be entertained. And uh, so it, it's been kind of nice this week to just kind of sit and relax. And it's quiet because he talks nonstop. Uh, he's a great kid, and but he talks nonstop. He, we were sitting in the living room the other night, and, and or the other day while his dad was at work, and he said, he said, all of a sudden it just got quiet. I'm like, yeah, that's because you quit talking, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that we, doesn't happen all that often. So we, I mean, we got the two of them, and Robert's been over here, and, and uh, he has to take breaks because it's like nonstop because there's one talking and then the other and then the other and then and it's nonstop and. Uh, we had the neighbor. And then one's climbing all over you while the other one's trying to show you something and then another thing and then another thing and then another thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that all the time, man. It's yeah. uh, and then, sensory you know, overload. Had, yeah, absolutely. We, we you know, Skylar came to our home in January. And then like in October that same year, we had a sibling group of three placed with us. And at the time, Skylar was five. And the other, the sibling group of three, they were five and under. So we went from zero kids to four kids, five and under. In Instant family. Absolutely. And it was, you know, it was sensory overload because they were very loud. And then the, they tried to talk even louder to be louder than the other kid. And it's just, you know, I, I watch videos because even with just Skylar, it's still quieter than it was when we had four. 
So I go back and I watch videos and I'm like, gosh, I, I had forgotten how loud it was in our home. So I can imagine if someone came over to our home, because I guess you just tune it out after a while because it's a sur survival. If you don't tune it out, you'll go crazy. So for people to come over and just be in that chaos, I'm sure it was not a pleasant experience for them at times. It wasn't pleasant for us sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one great thing I'm looking forward to is being a grandparent eventually. A long time, girls, a long time from now. Uh, yeah. the, <laughs> as soon as it gets overwhelming, hand it back. Yep. Yep. That's that's definitely the nice thing about it. Of course, we we live with our mother-in-law. And so she doesn't get a break anymore, but she, she lives on, she stays on the third floor. So she, she could go up there and get a little peace and quiet. Yeah. Yeah. When Robert was here, he would come to to my office where he was staying and mm -hmm. uh, need little like five minute breaks. Pretty frequently. Yeah. Every time lock the door, which is awesome. And yeah. you can close the drapes. So if they don't know you're in there, you can hide for a little <laughs> bit before they find you, which Start they bang. inevitably will. So oh, yeah. you get a few minutes there of quiet and peace. Yeah. I, I can remember with the with all four kids because I I worked in I'm a, a CPA and I was worked in a public accounting firm and so during tax season we worked really long hours in the evenings and then on the weekends as well and I can remember getting up on Saturdays and my husband bless his heart being glad I had to leave to go to work because it would be quiet there and poor poor Charlie he didn't get that break unfortunately. All right. Well, now is the time I think to talk about uh, any final notes. We're already actually a little bit long on time. Uh, or we can get in a final summary review. And Robert, um, somebody listened to our uh, Finding Nemo episode from a couple of years ago and I gave me believe it. feedback. Uh, that was a Father's Day episode that we did. And uh, I actually re-listened to it again just because it had been brought up. And I was like, wow, that was actually a pretty good episode. So the, the guy who was on, Jeremiah, he would, make another, he would make a good guest. I think we should have him back on sometime. But anyway, the guy who uh, listened to it and then reached out to me was like, Hey, so do you guys always do this like black and gold rating? I'm like, oh no, that's like old school. That's like nostalgia. We don't do that anymore. Now we do this like lame uh, out of 10 decimal point deep thing. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we need to bring back the black and gold. So I'm going to bring back the black and gold for my score tonight. Uh, oh. But are there any any final notes before getting summary and review? This is how easily influenced Daniel is. <laughs> like one person says he should do something. <laughs> he's like, yes, sir, boss, I will do this. Excellent like, idea. I'm like Dory from Finding Nemo. Like, what? What? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. What? <laughs> All right. So, so who wants to go first? So there's no final notes. Is that? Uh, no, uh, final notes. I was going to wrap them into my final review. So. All right. Go Rachel, for it. Get notes? Oh, okay. All right. Here it goes. So I know when you're a screenwriter and you're trying to write a movie, you're going to make choices. It's a process of what you want to focus on versus what you don't. And this film, I think, definitely did a good job focusing on certain characters even though it's more of an ensemble piece, but it really does focus on the two main parents and then the teenage daughter. And I think it really develops and works on those characters really well. The only issue I had with the characterizations in this film was the sun. The sun was just a prop to do stupid shit. That's all he was. There was no development there. He was just there in the scene to do something stupid so that everybody else could react to him and cause drama and whatever. And he was completely ridiculous. And I kind of wish he had at least a little bit of a, a character in the film. But for the most part, it was well done. I, I laughed, I cried. Um, and it was overall just a, a really well uh, human story. I didn't. I don't think it was like the most amazing acting I've ever seen, but it was solid and competent. Um, the plot was a little bit, you know, by the numbers, you know, uh, drama kids don't like them they're great kids they're bad kids are they going to get to keep them or not yes ultimately they do of course 
Um, but what are you going to do? Uh, you can, you can lean into the melodrama. You can lean into what you expect and still in, entertain your audience. Even if you're not creating something like amazing groundbreaking auteur style filmmaking, this is something that is made to appeal to a wide audience for the most part. And I think it succeeds. So, um, I'm going to give this movie a seven out of 10 and uh, recommend it to people that are interested, unless you are heavily offended by the Lord's name being taken in vain, because I think <laughs> you would not enjoy this movie at all. I don't even remember. See, I'm so immune to it. It's like, are you kidding me? Somebody saying the word God or something is like not even on my radar. If they could have said it 50 times in this movie, they could have said it once in this movie. I don't know. But apparently it was too many times for some people. So if you're sensitive to that, don't watch them. Otherwise, check it out. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to translate your score into my uh, old school scoring system and that's a gold, not a solid gold, not a super strong gold, but still gold. And I'm going to agree, this is a gold film. I think it's pretty good. It's it's entertaining. Uh, it does have, you know, sort of that weird dichotomy of of it's trying to be comedic and it's trying to be dramatic and I think it loses me a little bit there, but I think for the most part Wahlberg and uh, Rose Byrne do a pretty solid performance and I think the kids do a pretty fine job. I, th I think you're right about the uh, the son. He is just kind of a prop to be like, used for comedic effect, though he's also like supposed to be this like um, kind of shy, emotional one who's um, not real. Um, uh, he's not really found himself just yet, so he is sort of just like a prop, and and that's kind of the character. But I thought the daughter did a, a really good job of being like this rebellious teenager. And uh, I know we didn't really talk about this too much, but it did kind of strike uh, home to me that it would make sense that uh, similar to. Uh, when people go to the pound to get a dog, they look for the puppies and the puppies sell out first. Uh, and then it's the older dogs that kind of get the sympathy and it's like the middle dogs that nobody wants to get. And so I could see that, that you know, those, those older kids would be harder to find uh, foster or adoptive homes. And that, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, as far as the plot goes, I mean, it kind of just felt like this is an adoption story. There's nothing like super standing out about it i know it was based on a true story and i think it was the director's um, experience of, of going through the adoption process but nothing really stood out to me as why this is like different than any normal kind of adoptive uh, situation i mean i'm sure they're all you know unique in some way but i didn't see what made this one the one to make a movie about so that kind of left it with not knowing why they made the movie like why did this stand out it kind of makes me downgraded just a bit though still gold still gold just a little little tarnish on it um but yeah so that's kind of my take on it so it's a good movie it's recommended it's got some funny parts it's got some decent performances i don't understand why it's a movie and uh the mix between the drama and the comedy didn't really f flow for me um but uh rachel we'll go to you and unless uh anyone else chime in and, and shut down my uh my scathing review here <laughs> well is it black or gold for you it's gold it's it's a, like a tarnished gold Gotcha. Well, the, the guy that wrote the script, he is an adoptive parent. And I think probably the reason that he wrote this, um, I don't know for sure. I, I did listen to a podcast that he was on and he talked about writing the script. And of course I've slept since then and I have the uh, memory of a gnat. So <laughs> he probably explained why he, he wrote it. But my, my question, my thought is that, you know, adoption is dear to his heart. And so he wanted to, to put something out to maybe encourage other people to consider adopting through, foster care or whatever. So that's, I'm guessing that's the why. And I think as an adoptive parent, I, th I think they did a good job of showing, of being realistic instead of making people think that these kids are going to be perfect and that life is going to be perfect. And it's like, no, you know, sometimes life sucks. I mean, it sucks even if you have biological kids sometimes, you know, um, but I think they, 
they present it in a way that's pretty realistic. And I think you can watch this movie and go into it and kind of be prepared for what you're going to face when you enter this. I mean, it's not going to hundred percent prepare you, but it's going to prepare you better than some of these child placement agencies that say, Oh, come foster through us and you'll be able to adopt a kid yesterday. So I, I think it gives people a good perspective on what it's like to be in the foster through the, uh, through CPS for the most part. But I, I, I enjoy it. We bought, we bought the movie. I, I thought it was this is national may is actually national foster care month or something like that. So um, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good movie. We bought it because I, I wanted to support the project. And uh, I would say probably an eight out of 10. All right. Also a gold, a little shinier than, than Robert's gold. See, that's the thing I like about the black and gold is I don't have to give it like, you know, too specific. It's just like a basically a thumb, thumbs up, thumbs down style. Um, now you mentioned it as a project. So was there some kind of a, I don't know, not a GoFundMe, but like, was this like a kind of a, a thing that was like, you're supporting something in particular? Like, was this based on? I, I don't um, think it's support. Th- I just wanted to support a, a decent movie that kind of is, you know, it's near to my heart because we've adopted my son through foster care and it's, and it's not, you know, most stuff that, that get puts out the, the message is more important than the quality of the film. And you see this in a lot of Christian movies that are just terrible and the acting's terrible. And and I thought this was a quality project that still promoted a good thing. If, if you think fostering through CPS is a good thing, I, I'm a little more conflicted than I was. I was still a status fact when, we started our journey to adoption. And so I'm a little more conflicted about it now than I was back then. But I mean, I still think there are kids that need homes. So I think this is a, a good way to put that message out there and try to recruit more people to adoption without it all being about you should become adoptive parents. It's a quality story that kind of has that theme running through it, I guess. That's a good point. Yeah, I am definitely conflicted in terms of CPS. I It's, it's an agency I definitely am against, uh, but they do some good work. They do rescue some kids, but I don't, and I don't know, you know, for every kid they save, how many are they horrifically kidnapping away from good parents for nothing? Like you said, like for having some weed or something like that, Mm -hmm. a different medical opinion or a different medical opinion Uh, for, yeah. So are you adopting away kids from a perfectly good parent or are you adopting kids that def- desperately need a safe environment. Uh, right. It's difficult. It's obviously on a case by case basis, but yeah, it's yeah. Not, not so cut and dry. It reminds me of the Bastiat quote where, you know, you, you say that um, if we're against government education, we're against education. Well, no, it's we're against the government providing it. You know, yeah. I'll put that whole quote on the show notes page. Um, I'm just kind of paraphrasing it, but to, to, to argue against the government handling something doesn't mean we're arguing against the thing happening. We're just saying right. it couldn't be done through uh, aggressive violence and, and extortion to get the funds for it and uh, be right. run in a bureaucratic manner uh, where they fail forward and get bigger budgets, more power uh, by doing a poor job. So anyway, um, that's been our show, everyone. Uh, Rachel, you've been a, a very excellent guest. As always, we'd love to have you back again in the future. We'll be sure. posting the uh, episode that you've done with um, the foster person. Um, what was that? Episode 92? 95. 95. Krista McIntyre. I'll, I'll send you the link. All right, that sounds good. And then also... Um, I don't know if this is like totally a for sure thing, but I think it's a for sure thing. We will be guests on your show in the coming weeks to take a uh, look at a movie that's relative related to cannabis, uh, the Matthew McConaughey film, the gentleman. And so we'll get that on the books. And so people look forward to that. That will be posted at cannabis heals 
com, uh, as well as uh, her episode 95. And whatever you got, what, what is your uh, next episode coming out that uh, is in the hopper? Well, that is an excellent question. I was telling um, Robert while we were, while you were, had bugged out and were rebooting. I've been having trouble getting guests. And I think it's a little bit of me not being as aggressive with trying to get guests on and a little bit of everybody's just distracted by all this COVID that even though they're not doing anything, you would think it'd be easy to get somebody to come on and talk. So a lot of the people that I've wanted to get on are just busy right now. So I've been trying to line up some guests and haven't had a whole lot of luck. So I don't know when the episode will be out. It won't be this, this week, but maybe hopefully the week after that. Well, mark us down. We'll do it. We'll do that it. That sounds well, awesome. I'll, I'll have to figure out how to use StreamYard. <laughs> I may have to get you to give me a tutorial. Yeah, well, I can just host it like uh, like we're doing here and just give you the file. That'd be awesome because my technical ability goes down yeah, like yeah. exponentially with every day I get older. Yeah, my age goes up. Technical ability goes down for sure. Yeah, it's like, where's that button? <laughs> and it's right there in my face. God, I'm, I've become my mother. Well, again, thank you very much. And, and people can find you at Cannabis Heals Me and find that uh, episode on The Gentleman, which we have not yet recorded. So I can't tell you how good it's going to be, everyone. It's going to be uh, awesome, of it'll course. Probably, it'll probably be pretty, 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 pretty good. How uh, could it not be? Just like this episode and just like next week's episode where we're going to be talking about the film on Netflix called The Platform, which is communist propaganda about... Um, oh, the class system? The class system, yes. So that, that'll be a fun one, Robert. And we're going to have um, Scott... The musician who goes by the moniker Captain A, join us. He was uh, most recently with us for Enemy at the Gates, and he was also on for Crazy Heart, and uh, he may have been on for something else uh, as well. But uh, he's a good guest. He's a good guy. He's also from Texas. Uh, steers and Queers and CPAs, Foster Moms, and uh, musicians from Texas. So <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. But anyway, that'll be the uh, the episode next week. And uh, Rachel, if you can stick around for a little bit longer, we'll be doing some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for Patreon supporters. Gets a little more bonus content out there. So check it out at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Also, uh, if you want to uh, have a nice uh, carry holster, the Urban uh, Carry G3 is a super nice holster. Check it out at lastnarrative.com slash G3 and uh, get your own. I'm wearing mine right now. Super comfortable sitting down. Don't even notice it's there unless I think about it. And uh, looks like I'm packing, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm going to stop running my mouth here. This is episode 123, uh, com slash 123. And you can also find it on Launchpad Media. Where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And we will say goodnight from last night, everyone. Peace out. All right, I'm going to continue the transmission for just a little longer. Uh, I know we've already been going a little bit long for this episode, but uh, Robert, I have this um, scenario that I want to run by you. And this is from a movie, or not a movie, but a, a television show we've been watching recently called Longmire. Uh, it's about this uh, sheriff in Wyoming. And there's some vigilanteism going on in this. We're uh, just starting season three now. It's actually getting pretty good. But uh, the question is this. Um, in one of the most recent episodes that we watched, there is a criminal who's in jail and his partner uh has agreed to wait to retrieve the money until after his prison sentence but the girlfriend of the guy in jail tells the guy in jail that his partner is all of a sudden spending all this money and has a sailboat and all these things to make uh the guy in jail believe that his partner has betrayed him and gets him to basically point the finger at the guy in jail but the girlfriend is also telling the prison guard that she's afraid that when he gets out of jail, that he's going to harm her. 
And so convinces and, and actually pays the prison guard to have the guy in jail murdered before his release. And how he does this is he tells one of the crazy uh, homicidal guys in, in the jail that, oh, hey, this guy, you know, said you're, you know, something bad, whatever, you know, like besmirched his honor or whatever and knew that that would entice this guy to shiv the guy who's about to be released. So it's this kind of intricate web. And I, I don't know if I've explained it very well, but what do you, who is at fault here? Who, who, I mean, she's put this all in motion. She hires the prison guard to do this, who weaponizes the crazy guy to, to shiv the guy, but she's you know, all the while trying to get the money for herself uh, by eliminating the partner who is loyal to the guys in jail, kill the guy who's in jail, and then probably, you know, end up like breaking up with the prison guard guy. Is it convoluted enough? But we've talked about this like kind of scenario before where, you know, who's really responsible, who's ultimately responsible. There's, um, you know, you, you have self-ownership and you own the actions that you choose to do. But we know that like if somebody swats someone else, there's a high probability that that is a weaponization of, of something and that they're going to be harmed as a result of it. So I don't know. What, what's your take on that? Like, I think it's the woman who's done this, but she's also uh, multiple people are also responsible for this. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the woman is completely faultless or even a good person that I'd want to hang out with or anything like that, or definitely deserves to be shamed at least and have her, her, her actions exposed. Right. I don't know if I necessarily, she did hire it. She's a she murderer. Paid, she paid for the murder to happen. Right. She offered money to somebody in exchange for an action to take place. Correct. Yes. Which the person is free to turn down. But he did not. But he didn't. And he didn't even do the murder. He got another guy, some uh, some crazy guy that isn't in full control of his faculties. Yeah, he weaponized that guy. That was his instrument. Right. So I mean, you got a bunch of crappy people doing crappy things. Are we? Are we? Are you? Are you trying to get me to commit to one person ultimately being responsible? Uh, yeah, just trying to get your take on it because it's it's something we've explored before. I don't really remember. It seems like a, sort of an ongoing, you know, chess match discussion that we've been having. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, so you know, it's the old: is the president culpable for all the war crimes? Is the mafia boss culpable for all the murders? Obviously, if there's no coercion and all the people turn down the offer, then what are they guilty of? Being a crappy person, offering a bunch of money for crimes to be committed, but ultimately nothing's happened. I mean, I guess in you know legal sense, even offering to hire a hitman is a crime, right? Under this status system, yes. I don't know under a free society. I mean, I would definitely want that person's actions exposed. It's not a, a cool thing to do, but it's. I don't think it's murder to offer money for a murder to happen, right? It can't be the same as murder. It's not good. And maybe some places in the world would want it to be illegal. And some places would be like, yeah, it's frowned upon, but we're not going to arrest you over it. We're going to expose your your actions, but we're not going to like slap you in a cage for it. Uh, ultimately, I think, you know, uh, ostracism solves all this. Exposing the person's actions and shaming them and ostracizing them solves it way better than making something officially illegal or whatever. It's definitely, I guess, culturally frowned upon. Obviously, this character in this movie or this TV show is a villain character, right? Right. Yeah. yeah and I think... I think she got arrested as a result of it, but that's, you know, in the present legal structures and whatnot. Um, but it, it kind of reminds me of um, the uh, girl who broke up with the guy or, or whatever and, and was sending texts like, oh, you should kill yourself. Right. And he yeah, was a famous case. case. Yeah. And she recently got out of jail. Yeah. So I just 
thought it was related. No, no. Well, no, it's definitely related. I, I, I know people that I've talked to about that case who definitely think that she should be guilty of murder. And I think that's kind of ridiculous. Okay, well, let's turn it to present day events and then we'll get Rachel's take before we uh, actually move into Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Um, what of the governor shutting down the stay-at-home orders and people not able to work and suicide rates going up as a result, are they capable for those suicides? They, they lead directly to them uh, having dire situations that makes suicide seem more of a you know desirable outcome. Can she hear us? Is she still with us? Oh, are you asking me? I thought you were asking Robert. I was asking Robert, and then I was going to loop you in, but... Um, oh, oh, you were asking me. Sorry, I'm, I'm a confusing person. Oh, uh, maybe our names both start with an R, I, and I heard Rachel. Sorry about that. Okay, so suicides. Are they directly culpable for the suicides? I don't know that they're directly culpable for the suicides, but they definitely don't have the authority to shut down the whole society in the first place, so... But they are doing it, and more people are committing suicide as a result of it. Right, but they're doing it with the help of the brown shirt people and the Karens and the busybodies. Yeah, the 99%. They wouldn't, if, if the culture of this world and this country was actually one of liberty and freedom versus whatever it actually is today, their government edicts would just be laughed at and ignored. So you're saying society is implicit in that? I'm not going to be a collectivist and say we're all culpable guilty of these suicides. <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, they don't happen if this doesn't get shut down, right? You don't or, necessarily know that. Not as you many. Don't necessarily know that. It's there sure. are the rate goes up. You're right. The rate goes up, but whether or not this directly leads to, I mean, statistically, it's like what um, you watched the second season of Ozark. No, no, I quit. No, you haven't. No, you should. you should. You should watch. Or the third season just came out. Sorry, it's the third season where he's talking about. Well, the Jason Bateman character. It's a fantastic show. If you're not watching Ozark, I don't know what's wrong with your life in this lockdown. Why not? But he's he's like this mathematician guy, and he's trying to determine what people will do in his casino. And he's like, individuals are unpredictable, and I don't know what one person's going to do at any given time. But people in mass are predictable. And if you get a million people through these doors, I'm going to tell you what 5.4% of them are going to do and what 8.3% of them are going to do. And I'm going to be really, really close on those numbers. And what the hell was my point? Oh, no, I had a point. Yes. Something to do with lockdowns Good and Lord. and statistics Good and Lord. trending something as a result of actions, whether there's culpability or responsibility. Oh, so Biden 2020. Biden 2020. <laughs> you know, just trust that I had a point. And then I lost it as my train, it was going, it was driving into the station and it just fell off the tracks. All right, well, I'll tell you what, let's, it will come back to you. Probably. Overdrive, which is just more incentive for people to join us there. And, and Leave a little since we've been going there. so long, maybe Rachel, you can respond uh, to the Longmire question in the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, if that's, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. Well, hey, that's our episode, everyone. Uh, actually, slash 180, a bit of a cliffhanger. If you want to hear more, pay us some dollars and uh, other ways you can support us, Robert, uh, drop them. Drop them like they're hot. Oh, crap. I still need to talk more. Okay. So you can go to Trupture.com and buy a T-shirt or a sticker or any kind of uh, embroidery, poster, all kinds of stuff that they offer on that on that thing. It's just a hot link to uh, my account on T T Public, but, you know, it's, uh, it's what we can do. But anyway, you can uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can leave a comment, interact with us, a thumbs up on YouTube. You can leave a... Did I already say a review on Apple Podcasts? I think I did. You did, but double do too. Double double dip on that action. Oh, twice. Double dose. Double dose of the pimpin'. And um, yeah, you can um, support us on Patreon. That's our that's our uh, big one that Daniel's always pimping out. 
but uh, really just telling a friend, telling a family member, sharing the show, you know, reacting to us on the Facebooks. You know, that's that's the, those are the things that we really enjoy. Yeah, or suggest a movie or tell us we're dumb about something, but have an argument. You know, don't don't just be emotional about it. Come on, everyone. We know we know there's some smart people out there listening. And uh, speaking of smart people, we've got Rachel, our guest. You're a very smart person, very good guest. And uh, your show, Cannabis Heals Me, will be on it very, very soon. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be a very good discussion. And uh, people can find that at CannabisHealsMe.com. They can also find this episode's show notes and everything at actuallyanika.com slash 180. And they can find Kathleen Turner Overdrive right after these messages from Rachel. Final words to uh, the audience, and we'll uh, kick it over to the other thing. Go check out our website, CannabisHillsMe.com, or you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever podcast app you have a preference for. And my friend Dan, he did some t-shirts for me recently. So if you're interested in a Cannabis Hills Me shirt, so that when you get stopped, you know, they'll bust you because they'll say they smell pot. <laughs> you can go out to CannabisHillsMe.com slash SWAG and check out those shirts. Oh, very nice. And and just to be clear, it's not me. I had nothing to do with these shirts, though. Uh, I would Oh, yeah. Sorry, Dan. Dan Reed. All right. Well, that's our show, everyone. So Cannabis Heals Me, and uh, we'll be back next week with the platform with Captain A, and we're going to do some Kathleen Turner Overdrive right after this, and uh, we'll say maximum freedom, everyone. Good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do